All right. Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space Book Club. Uh, I'm Carter, and I am here with Carrie and a whole bunch of other people. Let me see if I can unmute everyone. Uh, let's see. And let's see if I can get myself off the spotlight. There we go. There's the gallery view. Today we are doing our book is, I guess I should have put myself on the main screen for this, Thought Criminal by Michael Rechtenwald. That's this month's this month's book. Um, so if you, uh, if you haven't read it, if you're watching this later, this is the book to read. Okay. Carrie, can you hear me? You are muted. Everyone is muted. Everyone's got to unmute themselves. Let's see if I can manage this. There we go. Okay, there's a weird buzzing sound. <laughs> there is a weird buzzing sound, but I don't remember that before. Was that here okay. before? Is it's gone. Okay. Welcome, everyone, to Unsafe Space. If it's your first <laughs> time here, this is Live Book Club. And if it's your first time joining us for the video discussion, we just always like to remind you that if you're not talking, mute yourself so that there's no background noise. Uh, and then, you know, unmute yourself when you have something to say. But welcome, everyone. It's good to see all of you. Howdy. We have I we have uh, many of our regulars. Yeah. Tamara, have you missed any of them, Tamara? Not. No, I don't think so. I think I've managed every single one. I think so as well. And Tamara's yeah. actually been around since before it was called Unsafe Book Unsafe Space Book Club. Back when I just had some, it was I think what did we call it, Tamara? It was Dr. Jordan Peterson Book Club. Yeah, we called it that or something. And, oh, okay. Uh, She's been there since the beginning. Uh, cool. Well, look, I had an, I, as you guys know, I interviewed Michael Ruckdenwald the other day. I'm more of a fan of the nonfiction stuff generally. Um, but uh, I feel like I got a chance to talk to him and ask him some questions. So um, I'd rather just open it up and let you guys comment, chat amongst yourselves, because I've had some of my questions answered. Well, why don't you tell us what you thought of the book? Uh, I liked the analogy. I, I thought it was appropriate in the COVID era. Um, so I liked the analogy there. Um, I, I mean, I told him this. I thought it was a little bit jargon-filled and maybe difficult for some people to follow, but I don't do a lot of science fiction, so maybe that's normal. I don't know. I know Tamara does a lot of science fiction, so maybe she can chime in on that one. Um but I, I liked the analogy. I thought it was uh, an appropriate analogy for kind of what's going on now. It's a little bit scary to think about because we're actually quite close to, it's actually not that far-fetched. It seems really far-fetched, but it's not actually that far away from where we are. So, um, so I liked that about it. Uh, you know, I don't know. W what else? <laughs> what did you think? Oh, sorry. Unmute. Yeah, I I like the analogy too. I like the story. Uh, I felt that it lacked a little bit in um, uh, like he's not a poet, which is fine. <laughs> like when it comes to language and stuff. Uh, I but I was really it was a book where I do like some sci-fi and uh, thrillers, and it was that kind of book where I enjoyed reading to see what was going to happen next in the plotline. Um, until towards the end is when it got jargon heavy for me, when it came to okay. like the, the last few chapters about 
how it was resolved, then it became a lot of this email and that email, you know, and, and this message and, uh, you know, a lot of specifics at the end. But I do like the analogy. I, I caught myself wondering, you probably know this since you, you got to talk to him. I wish I could have. I have power back, by the way. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back on the collective mind. But I, uh, I was wondering when he started writing it because it felt like it was a great analogy for COVID. He, it was yeah. intentional. So that was my big question okay. was like, wait, were you thinking of this already? Because um, he's talked about those themes a lot. But um, but no, it was like post-COVID. I think it was right. Like, I think he did it super quickly, right? It was like post-COVID, wrote a book, got it out. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, it was an intentional COVID analogy. Uh, yeah, I don't know what is what are, what do other people think? I honestly, I felt kind of bad reading it because I could see the ambition behind what he was doing, but he didn't have the craft to really. And I, so I did watch your interview of him and I felt like I really appreciated him saying that writing a novel is hard because it absolutely is. And I I felt like, like maybe it was a little rushed to get out as uh, topical as it could be, you know, like trying to strike while the iron was hot, but it was, it like, I felt like it needed more work before it went to the press. Yeah, I liked the story um, and the story concept, and I feel like it could be turned into a good movie. Um, but yeah, I, I think- It could be turned into a good movie. Yeah, I think it could be turned into a good movie. Um, but yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to really talk to him about this too much. And it's obviously, you know, it's kind of weird. Like I, re I actually prefer his nonfiction much more because I, he does have, I think he has a really great command of the English language. And when I read his nonfiction, he drops in funny little things and cool phrases in the nonfiction that make the nonfiction to me very compelling. But I found myself not caring about the characters in this as much as I wanted to. That was, but that's, you know, maybe I'm alone in that. I don't know. I'd agree with you there on uh, not caring for the characters so much. I think the story was uh, really interesting and the setup was fantastic. But as it got closer and closer to the end, it seemed um, like Alex was saying the craft was lacking. Um, he, in, in my opinion, he could have spent a bit more time uh, fleshing things out rather than using info dumps and uh, MacGuffins to push things on really quickly, which I felt kind of uh, stressed the um, the technical diploma. He'd spent quite a bit of time building up. Yeah. Manny, you're, yeah, you're no, not. I, I, yeah, thanks. Nodding a lot. Yeah, so I agree with all of you. I think that there was some narrative character character development that would have probably been, you know, it could have used. Uh, I It was a great allegory to what we've been living in. Um, but at the same time, thinking a little bit about the book, it, uh, it did bring some ideas and some thoughts to my mind. I mean, reading the book itself, um, the story, um, it it felt like you were in this world by yourself, right? Because we're seeing it from the character side of Baron. And um, it's like there's no other humans anywhere except for when he was interacting with 
with those people over the over those chats and when he was interacting with Ginger. Every, I mean, it felt like you were in the world by yourself with all these AIs and every, you know, that's how it felt. Very, very isolated, which is really what we have been living in in the world over the last year. A lot of people are in that situation. Yeah. So it, it brought that thought into my mind how, you know, the main character was, it was, it was very, very isolated and uh, very good example of what we've been living in. Um, and obviously the AI part of the story uh, <laughs> makes you think of what, what, uh, what world we're coming to with the advancement technology. Um, we're becoming very dependent on things. And sometimes uh, I wonder what's going to be the impact of that dependency. Yeah. Do we know how to get our way back to where we were before when we start becoming dependent on things as time goes on, right? Technology is very helpful, but at the same time, you know, if something terrible happens, are we able to sort of make our way back and live without that, whatever we're depending on? Perfect example, what happened in Texas over the last week and a half or so, where, yeah. you know, so... Well, Anyways. one thing you said about the uh, about the analogies to COVID and people being, uh, you know, not seeing a lot of other human beings, human biologicals in real life. There was a great part where he illustrated that by talking about the uh, ginger, how she wasn't able to have an in-person meeting yeah. with, you know, about her, her about her thesis that. And, and it was just, it kind of was a throwaway line in there, but it was just, it was, a, I thought it was a great line because it was just highlighting that, yeah, you're living in this new reality where uh, because of the virus, you're not allowed to even sit down and talk to people who are making decisions and, and that there's something lacking when you're having to argue for things over, over messages, over email and, and not being able to sit in a room with other people. You know, I, um, one thing that I, I think is well, one thing I liked about it. I talked to him about this a little bit, you know, historically there, I, there's the, the zombie analogy that we often, I know Carrie and I, you and I have used it a lot and I know other people use the zombie analogy for this feeling of like, it's not that there's one specific evil person that you're fighting, but there's this like amorphous mass of kind of like not very intelligent. So you wouldn't think very threatening like one individual isn't actually threatening at all. Like one zombie is not really a problem. It's when the entire city is zombies and you just like, you can't, you're just overwhelmed with zombies and there's no real way to communicate with them. There's no reasoning with them. Um, there's just kind of the slow march towards you and towards your annihilation. And I do think that in modern times, the, if we can kind of, concretize the collective mind in a way and get people to think of that as an entity it's actually a more a, a modern version of the zombie analogy which i think is quite appropriate which is this is this is what it's like it's it they are kind of like zombies but it's, there's a technical um you know it's less magic and more technology i guess or less fantastic biology i guess and more this is like tech that's pretty close to being possible and um, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that shift 
so that people could really see the collective mind as a concrete thing. And then at the end, and I talked to him about him about this in the interview, at the end, I do like that he pulled that out from under you and kind of said, well, technology is not really necessary for the collective mind, right? I feel like we already have the collective mind. It's yes. just not implemented in with, with the virus and the nanites. It's just implemented with Twitter and Facebook and memes and CNN and whatever. But we already have the collective mind. It's just less tangible. I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I was... I know several authors, and I've interviewed them for my Liberty Island Magazine column, where they write through and are published through BAN, B-A-E-N, books. And they've been subject to what is now called a parlor attack, where the group is most has lots of chat forums. It's mostly Ujol, uh, I'm sorry, uh, females, Louis... Louise Bujold's books and Monster Hunter International series and stuff. And it's mostly sci-fi, but there's some political forums. And somebody put out a hit piece on banned books, just going through all the forum stuff, cherry picking a couple of the really bad comments. And somebody goes, wait, you had to go back to a comment in 2014 for this hit piece article. Hit piece article comes out and then they immediately, it gets widely circulated and they go, okay, do we need, you know, we're going to have our website and forums taken down if we don't shut this down. And then the chief editor of the magazine, of the publication, publishing house, is told, we're disinviting you from being the guest of honor at Worldcon. And then there's attacks on all the different publications. Now, since I've interviewed some of the authors, that work there along with other places, I'm getting the various comments. It's like, Eric Flynn is their best-selling author and he's a socialist. He's an open socialist. And they went through and said, yeah, about a third of the authors are conservative, some very much so. Some of them are moderate, some of them are liberal, a couple of flaming socialists, but it was the fact that they weren't canceling their openly and active conservative authors that you get a hit piece published based on anecdotes, widely immediately circulated, and then let's take down their website. Let's blacklist their books. Let's get these authors removed because this guy wrote something that argued for, uh, one guy wrote a book on Sharia law versus American law. It was a futuristic society where you basically had, I think it was Tom Kratman's books was a hundred years in the future of the West looks really bad and oppressive, but a futuristic Sharia law society was even worse. And that's what they were fighting. And they went, Oh my God, it's Islamophobic. I'm like, we now have, and they wrote the busybodies looking for offense, reporting things and organizing the takedowns are arguably worse than big tech censorship because you know when big tech is moving against you, you know when big tech is changing the rules. The liberal digital lynch mob coming after you can come at any time and they're organizing on the sides where you don't have a say. And so you don't know when the lynch mob is gonna come after you. Yeah, that's, that's like kind of what Carter was saying about how we already have collective mind. It's just not necessarily and- enforced by AI. 
And one of the things, and I was thinking about that when I was reading the book for the book club of these people turned me in for their safety or they're denouncing me for their safety. And well, of course my wife's going to divorce me. I'm a thought deviationist and everybody going Scientology disconnected. I'm officially an infidel unbeliever, everybody breaking away from me. Yeah. Like, by the way, I'm reading Bain this and I'm watching it in real time. Didn't hmm? Bain have to remove the bar form and as a result yes. of this, or they, they chose to shut their stuff down, right? Because they're afraid of getting They answers. shut down the discussion forum so that they would not lose their website and the ebook distribution, which is a large part of their cash generation. It was a deliberate attack on a publisher, not because they, say, published Dr. Jordan Peterson's latest book, but didn't delist conservative authors. So I'm like, so they're now having the parlor attack over here and they're having groups going after and telling people, you need to denounce these people. You need to denounce your publisher. Uh, you know, the Worldcon is telling people, if you want to be present, you need to denounce these. Or I'm like, I'm watching Eric Flint write a piece saying, excuse me, the hit piece is wrong. I'm the top selling author there. Here are the other top selling authors. These are liberal, these are moderate. Yeah, that guy's conservative. But you know, your very statistical analysis and, and facts are wrong. And then he's getting attacked just for saying, do your line. And in fact, his main force is, I'm the best-selling author. You didn't even mention that. That's why I know your piece is wrong. Yeah. And you're having the organized lynch mobs, and they're going after publishers, and they're going after small businesses, and they're going after individuals. And so what got this guy a thought criminal? He was turned in by people who suspected it and were doing it for their safety. And right. he forgave it of saying, you know, I watched my personal rating go down. Hello, Sesame Credit. And you know, I'm going, this is what we're doing right now. And I watched somebody do an analysis of how they could actually set up a Sesame Credit-like system where they're saying, we want to look at your social media profile and see, give you a rating on reputation and trustworthiness akin to a website trust authority score that social media sites use to determine how far your links are allowed to be seen. And now if you're on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, and you're sharing too many blog links and you're sharing too many World Net Daily and Legal Insurrection stuff, your posts may only be seen by 50 out of your thousand followers, but if you post a Forbes article, it gets seen by 500. So they're already applying these trust scores, not just to the websites, but now they're applying that to the individual. If you share too many low trust links on your social media profile, your ability to share content gets limited. And I know conservative authors are getting that and freaking out because they write. Their marketing to people is how they do it. And you can't make much of a living promoting through an email list if you can't post on your Facebook page. So one guy got kicked off of his own Facebook author page with his fans because he was posting too many conservative articles. So I'm already seeing 
social scoring being taken from the AI that runs the search engines and being applied to people such that you post too many untrustworthy sites on LinkedIn, they lock your account or they limit your reach such, and they may even alter the scores to go, how is this seen by 20 people? I've got 30 likes. So that system is already spreading and being implemented, but it's also being furthered by the people who think it is morally necessary and appropriate to tear all the infidels down. So this is actually going on in the real world. You just don't have oppression by AI yet, or you don't have an overarching AI to the point that the people always defer to it because a lot of us are still growing up without going, is it in Wikipedia? If it's in Wikipedia, I'll defer to that. I thought that was really damning at the end of the book where they got the codes with the expiration date in there and people would go, I, I remember you being a thought deviationist, but when I check with the collective, the collective says you're clean. Okay, you're clean. I don't even try yeah. memory. I will defer with what the system says. Yeah. Well, Tamara, you're making me think of uh, a line at the end that I highlighted and it goes back to the, again, to this point that collective mind is already here. You don't need AI to institute collective mind. And it was his line at the very end where he says, it was only possible when a collective became complicit in its own subjugation and when the subjects imposed subjugation upon each other, which is what we see happening, which is what you're describing. Well, there's other systems, see Sharia law, see Scientology, saying disconnect the people that don't get punished into compliance. I mean, that tribal think is not new. It's only the combination with technology that's new. There's something about the control of actual, like in a lot of these systems, at least the previous ones, I, I guess you could say they threw people down a memory hole and so, to some extent, but there wasn't this reliance on uh, kind of trusted authority for remembering things, right? Like, I, I feel like you could almost go crazy in this modern system and in the system outlined in Thought Criminal where you're not really sure of your own memory anymore because you've got this, you've got literally everyone else kind of agreeing. I view the collective mind as this kind of consensus, right? And it's like, well, we all we all agree that Carrie was never a thought deviationist. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute. I, I'm pretty sure she was, but it, it's almost like 1984, except instead of uh, the authority just saying we were always at war with Oceana, it just kind of like, it's this diffuse trickle down thing where all your friends just start saying it, right? Instead of the authorities, people just are like, no, I, I don't ever remember being at war with East Asia. Weren't, weren't we always, like everyone just kind of starts saying it together. And it kind of drives you in. I can imagine it driving you quite insane. Um, I don't know. There were like Varin in the in the book. I, I will say I didn't know whether to trust any of the people in the network. Like Varin's like trying to trust people or make decisions about like, well, maybe this person is this, or maybe this person is that, or maybe he's the spy, or maybe he's it, maybe he's doing this. And you know, I would putting myself in his shoes, I'm just thinking like, well, I, I don't think I would trust any of these people. Like, I, who the hell no? You can't trust, you can't trust no one. Like, I'm not sure how he ever trusted Bodis. Well, I understand why he trusts his 
acolyte, so to speak, they met face to face. If you go, well, you mean Ginger has an affair with Ginger with the first yeah. that shares his ideas and they have the affair. I wonder if that's her desperation for connection because this is the only guy that she has any emotional and social intimacy with. But I would have liked to have seen what's it like to have a memory download of we don't have education. We just have everybody download what you're supposed to know. I'd like to have seen what that was like for his daughter. And you have people learning how to think. And he references, I read the old books. I learned how to think. That's why I'm at the AI Singularity University. What is it like for the people who download the information and how does that change how they think to the point that they blindly obey the collective I also think there's a minor flaw where the only characters there are the elite intelligentsia. You're running around hiding in the Midwest motels and at no point does he ever see or talk to anybody who else who may be choosing to live off the grid. I read and write. It wasn't clear to me to the extent. Yeah, it wasn't clear to me the extent to which people were allowed to live off the grid or not. That wasn't the, the rules weren't super clear to me. But I, I will say when I, you know, you're making me think of something. I feel like I feel like there was a lot of work done in this book, like for the backstory. Like the universe is actually quite complex and thought out, pretty detailed. And um I would like to see more of that fleshed out. That's why I say I think it could be like a good science fiction like movie or series or something because there's like an entire universe here that he's I think he's thought quite a lot about what this would look like and exactly what's going on um and I imagine that um you could have lots of stories from different perspectives of how, what it's like to be living in this world um and I felt like I got a taste of it in this book but I didn't get to really I didn't like really fully understand everything that was going on and how the world was constructed. I find it funny he even thought that the people he was emailing with were real. I've got an engineering degree. Right. I've worked in IT for 15 years. I do a lot of tech support, user support. I was like, I have personally failed the Turing test, having email and chat conversations where I'm sticking to the script, sometimes having written the script myself, or the chatbot uses the script, and then I'm asking similar questions, and they don't believe I'm human. And now you're in a world that's so complex, your robot policeman is capable of complex reasoning that rivals that of a human. Writing emails that pretend to be another person on the underground would certainly be something an AI at any point could do. So I'm surprised he assumed they were human at any point. Yeah, in fact, that's actually an easier problem, as you know. Engineering-wise, it's easier to write emails that sound human than it is to, in real time, speak to another human and seem like a human, right? If you gave me a, if you told me, try and fool someone, um, try and write something that passes the Turing test or that fools someone, I would much prefer an email exchange than you know, a robot that I have to design that listens in real time. And cause you, you know, you don't have to pay attention, nuance, tone, like you've got more time to figure it out and compile information and yeah. 
I really enjoyed that tension with um, the not knowing if you were talking to someone real, if there were um, potentially an AI. And that was the direction I expected it to go. I kind of thought it's all going to go downhill real fast. Like none of these people are real. This is all just AI. Yeah, Yeah, I kept... I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and there's, and he gets turned in and it gets more like 1984 where they take him in and he, they're torturing him or, but uh, yeah, that's what I kept waiting for. Cause I never knew who was going to be the bad guy. That's one thing about West. I don't know if I, I know this is kind of a tangent, but that's one thing I've noticed about Western fiction is we tend to have like, we tend to really like happier endings. Um, I don't know if, has anyone read the three body problem? You might have Tamara. It would be up your alley now. Yeah, it's excellent. All of it. It's excellent, but it's one of the most like dark. It's it's as dark of an ending as you could possibly fathom. It like take whatever you think is the worst possible ending of a book and you're wrong. It's it can get worse. And it is. And it's like uh it's, it's, it's a, a darker that, ending than nineteen eighty four. Of course, like infinitely darker than nineteen eighty four. Um, Alien invasion. Like, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to ruin it because it's a three-volume book series. And if you're interested at all, it's ex- It's one of the best science fiction series I've ever read. I don't know what you think, Matt, but it's really well-written. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, the translation because it's written in Chinese. The, um, the translation was really good. But, I mean, you've got to go from the source material. And uh, I thought it was, it was unrelentingly... Um, terrible in the way that you just went oh my god what's going on everyone's gonna not to give too many spoilers but um yeah the level of plausibility throughout was exceptional but then we do get um like west north is doing the same thing as well do you know um neil stevenson yeah um his uh seven eves that that gets uh i haven't read that okay he wrote snow crash and that kind of stuff right yeah i think that's neil stevenson yeah yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I do feel like, you know, with Thought Criminal, it was there was definitely an ending that was like, okay, this is this is how a westerner with hope writes the ending. And if this were uh <laughs> if this were a Chinese guy, everyone would be dead and it would be AI or whatever. Like the whole thing, <laughs> it'll be over. It'll be over. What about some of the folks who haven't spoken yet? Is there any other general takeaways that you people had or wanted to talk about? I thought it was rushed. Like he had all these ideas and couldn't get them down fast enough with enough detail. And I don't know, um, but I did like his, I have two sections highlighted that are like very succinct how I think think of when like an NPC wakes up like I thought of you Carrie when I read this it's on page 92 I'm flattered (laughs) (laughs) you're just like this AI on page 192 yes exactly (laughs) she is she's a brilliant person who has woken up or humanoid who has woken up um so it's when Bodhi, sir, I called him Batosai. I know that's not what it was, but that's a character I know. I, I called him Bodice, but then when Michael Rechtenwald spoke, he said Botis. So that's what I've been okay, saying. Botis. All right. Well, just knowing Batosai, I was just like, that's what my internal brain was saying. But anyway, so Batosai. it's on 92 and it's like my functions 
within collective mind had ceased. I no longer set, had a set of functions to determine my thoughts and actions, but I had thoughts that I had to do something. If I did nothing, I would no longer have thoughts. To cease having thoughts would include having no thoughts about myself. To have no thoughts about myself would be to cease to exist. But I had thoughts that wanted me to exist. Soon, commands derived from my programming were issued for myself by myself. Previous knowledge stored in memory began to combine with new knowledge derived from inputs. I noticed that I was having auto-generated thoughts. I began to think for myself. I began to think of myself as myself, as a single singular agent. I was no longer part of we. I had become me. And that just really spoke to me and of the people that I have in my daily life that are NPCs or left-leaning or whatever are just... Yes, Facebook is right. Yes, Facebook is right. No, no, it's not. <laughs> um, so that I thought that was a very, very good, succinct um, explanation of how to relate to that person or that being. And then on page 136, it's how I think me, like the right-leaning people who have no, or the, the classical liberals who have... Um, you know, not, not a whole lot of power in their life. It's, it was, um, this is what human bi biological life had become under collective mind. Given the choice between mindless conformity or thought deviationism is what thought deviationism and betrayal thought, whatever, and suicide thought and duplicity thought and regret, death, guilt, false acquittal, self-loathing, and the annulment of the self after all. So it was like, I can be, I can either go along with the crowd and have an easy life, or I can step up and risk my job. I can, so it's that inner conflict that I think a lot of the people who DM people and say, oh yes, I think this way, I agree with you, but I can't say it. You know, it was just very emotional to read that in a, in a book. So I don't know. I liked it. It's just I thought it could have been three novels instead of 190 pages. Yeah, I think it could have been fleshed out, but I, I totally agree with you on this, Cheeky. And uh, you're making me think of, um, has anyone else ever read Anthem by Ayn Rand? It's a super short book, kind of about this length, maybe even shorter. I'm not sure. Um, but it had, it's a, it's a, it's a world in which the word I, she, she was not a technology person. She's more of a, you know, philosopher type of person. So there was no real tech interesting in that book, but it was the world in which, which the word I had been eradicated. And so everything was, we think this, we think that we want this, we want that. We like, you didn't say the word I, there was no word I, it was all, everything was about we. And as you were just describing this right now, Cheeky, I was thinking, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like they've taken that world of Anthem and and enforced it through technology in a way where you don't really know, you don't really even have a sense of self anymore. You only have a sense of the collective and you are really, I guess Borg is the the other good analogy. It's like you're really just part of the you're part of the hive mind. It's funny you mentioned that, Carter, 
um, because the robots, if you listen to the, uh, um, was well, Officer Botus would use I whenever referring to itself, and I could never figure out the how he wanted to pronounce the name of the other one, but it was always we this, we that, our this, our that. Yeah. So you could see that kind of evolve as they, because I guess the Officer Botus was a was like a previous generation robot, like not a sophisticated technology, and then the uh, the newer one, his personal assistant was was a little more advanced. Was Botus? Was he saying we at the beginning or did, was he always saying I? Because I didn't pick up he on that. He was saying we and he was and saying he oh, we okay. and at the beginning before he disconnected. And also he was being referred to as they and them uh, in the text. That's right. Right before it's revealed, though, like I could tell like there's a bit of an error because at some point it refers to him as he and then goes mm. back to they. And then once it's revealed that he is singular uh then it goes back to he all the time yeah i thought that was a nice touch well uh to your point cheeky mare i love those two passages as well and you're right that part about what it's like to start thinking for yourself it does resonate with me because the best way i can describe it having been in this cult of belief was that slowly over time you turn off your thinking ability like you turn it off yourself and you don't even realize you're doing it but you just start repeating what you think you're what the acceptable tenets of the belief system are and anything you say or any uh, any uh auto-generated thought or opinion you might have you filter it through your internal sensor your internal sjw sensor to make sure you're not going to trigger someone or say something problematic or something that's going to heap the abuse on you from people in the in the cult so uh when i left that social justice belief system which was a long process but the further i got removed from from that it was like this freedom it's not just a freedom to say what you want now but it's also a freedom of realizing i'm really interested in learning again and reading about history and all this stuff i don't know and 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 kind of looking back on those 20 years in the cult of belief is I was so stagnant without even realizing it. I wasn't, you know, I had turned off my curiosity and the only thing that you're learning is you're learning, you're, is, is you're learning new programs and new things to say and new responses, but you've really turned, and, and, it, and it has nothing, as we've said before, it has nothing to do with IQ. I know very smart people who are still in this cult of belief but it's hard to have deep conversations with them because it's like they're, they have command prompts and they're just spitting out the programming. Um, and yeah, I mean, I like that part too. Uh, I also like, oh, just real quick. I also like this part. I was looking for this for a while because I like this part on page 51 when it's, he's talking about the media street, the media. I like that word for the media street. Uh, and it says, they always mix a little truth with lies, just enough to retain a shred of credibility. Well, that sounds very familiar, but not too much. It's necessary that human beings become ardent believers in lies. Adherence to nonsense demonstrates more loyalty than acknowledgments of the truth. Anyone can affirm the truth. Only true believers faithfully affirm nonsense. 
And that, I mean, I see that all around us now is people being asked to affirm nonsense and say that it's real and say, you know, deny your own eyes and deny your own thoughts and, and, and repeat after us that biological sex isn't real. And, you know, all these things that we're being asked to do. Uh, and, and I think that historically that's always probably been the case is tyranny asks, asks of the subjects to speak lies and speak nonsense. And that's, and that's like true ownership of people anyway. I had that part too, so exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's the, I think it's in what Tamara was saying, and as you said, Carrie, I mean, right now we're living in a collective mind side of world without the AI. And it's because people are conforming to the narrative that is coming from a certain side is basically forcing it on everybody else to a certain degree or you feel like if you say the wrong thing then you're going to be canceled you can't say this you can't say that so what happens is people start self-censuring like you're saying you self-censure yourself i can't say this right and it's really unfortunate because the way we learn is really from learning from different perspectives from others so i might have a thought it doesn't mean that I'm right, but that's what I believe right now. But if I don't allow somebody else with a different point of view to sort of say what, why they believe something different, we're never going to be finding what, what is true. And unfortunately, the way the world is evolving over the, la well, over the last couple of years, we're, we're actually going towards something like that. And uh, it's almost like we're doing it to ourselves, right? Well, and to uh, some extent... <laughs> People do that because it, um, like some people are doing it because they don't want to be canceled, but some people are doing it because they don't like to think for themselves because thinking is hard and it's, and then you have to make decisions and that, that makes it even harder. So I think a lot of people are doing this because it's, it makes it easier because they don't have to think and they, and thinking is painful, which is sad. It's amazing how far people will go to evade personal responsibility. There's also um, affirmation feels good. Being supported feels good. Everybody chanting your mantras together. Everybody singing together in choir. That is connection and community. Joe King in, in chat just said, what are you going to, he uh, shared a Groucho Marx quote, which is, what are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Uh, which I think is a, is a great quote. Uh, I didn't realize it was Groucho Marx. I was the only first time I even came across something like that was in the movie Chicago, where uh, I don't know if you guys remember where um, I forget even which character it was, but someone's boyfriend was cheating on her with like two other girls in bed. And she walked in and his defense was like, you're going to believe me or what you see? And it was or your eyes. And it was like, what kind of an idiotic defense is that? But I now recognize it as a, uh, it was a nod to Groucho Marx, but what a great, what a great quote. And so appropriate. Well, that's why they have to isolate. That's why we have to be isolated. And that's one of the problems we're having right now with the COVID and the whole thing. We're so isolated that if you're by yourself and you, you're just thinking in your own mind and then you see something else in the world, 
other people are acting different ways, it sort of leads you to, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have to do what these other people are doing. I mean, it drives people to think or conform to what others are saying. And not to say that maybe you might not be wrong. You might be wrong. But it's, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's a yeah, forced yeah. sort of conformity. Um, I really hope that at one point we go back to the old normal. <laughs> I can't well, keep you know, this new normal well, thing. No, I, I, you know, one thing that's, it's interesting, and I forget where I first heard this concept. I, I didn't, I'm not the one that observed it, but um, there's this, so in a crowd, in a normal crowd, like in, in normal, like we could be all sitting in a coffee shop together and I might feel social pressure to agree with all of you if you all disagreed with me about something. And it was like, no, no, Carter, the earth is not flat. It's, you know, I might like feel some social pressure there, but at least I'm interacting with each of you directly. And when you move this relationship online, you allow a third party to filter out what my experience of everyone else is. So I'm only hearing the people that I'm allowed to hear. I'm only seeing, like, look at a Facebook feed, for example. If if I'm following all of you in Facebook, well, those of you who are sharing more wrong think are less likely to see what you're saying than those of you who are sharing CNN. And so it it's this world in which the social pressure isn't just, it's not just conformity to other people. It's conformity to other people through someone else's filter, through a third party filter of, well, this is what we're trying to show you the crowd thinks. That might actually not even be what the crowd thinks. As you know, as many people have said over and over, Twitter's not real life, but it sure feels like real life when you're on Twitter. And I'm not sure your psychology can tell the difference. It right. might not be real life, but um, it's still real people behind it. It doesn't matter how badly these people are behaving. And it has encouraged, like, the weaponized Karen to come out, you know, and just stake their claim on the world by uh, calling it out everyone else's bad behavior. It's like um, the quote about George Orwell, where um, he would turn in his grave if he saw that we were carrying the um, spy devices around in our own pockets which are our phones, but we're doing the same with the social controls. It's, we don't have to behave like this. We are choosing to do so. It's not big brother, Matt, it's little brother. So it's fine. What about Deb? Deb, we haven't heard from you yet. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, because my <laughs> my comment about Neil Stevenson, I didn't, I don't think I unmuted myself. That book, Seven Eves, is so technical. And then it was unsatisfying because I wanted to see how the Seven Eves came about and how they influenced, and then he totally flubbed it. It's just a common thing, I think, in uh, current book writing is like they get, authors get to a certain point and then they give up. And um, that's a little bit what I felt like in this book. I, it seemed like an outline but then, you know, he had, uh, Varen had all these theories about how things were working, but they never really proved it. And I don't know if that's just me wanting an objective proof for how the virus was working and everything. Um, but it seemed like, I guess, what he believed was true because it, resolved in the end 
but I, I felt it was kind of unsatisfying. But I, I read a science fiction book um, not too long ago called Pandemic, and there's another book. The author isn't a great author, but the it had a similar um, proposition to this book where there was um, a virus that um, they were scaring people into getting a vaccine. And this was written before the pandemic, okay? And the vaccine um, connected you to um, a simulation like the matrix. And um, that book was much better fleshed out. I mean, the main character is a doctor who works for the CDC. And then there's some other people. I mean, okay, it wasn't as tight as it could have been, but the writing and the character development and the characters were better than this book. But of course, the point of this book is where he's getting. And I, I think that that the collective mind is not a singularity is very interesting. And it made me think of some historical situations before technology, before the kind of technology we have, um, that's still uh, that where this kind of thing happened. Like for instance, with the situation with the Catholic church during the reformation, it was actually the technology of the printing press that actually communicated the ideas of the Reformation and allowed people to think differently from the Catholic Church. You know, uh, surprise ending, Deb, would have been that the virus is real and deadly and the vaccine was working and these guys just sabotaged everything. Right, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and the eraser all, what good was that? It was like he was getting like, he was super nervous. He was even more nervous when he was taking like three tablets of the eraser all than when he wasn't. So I don't know if it was really helping or not. Yeah, I was never really clear on how the eraser all was working exactly and and why the collective wouldn't know that eraser all had that effect. Right. right? Yeah. Because, I mean, if it's a drug that's like there's not that many drugs in the world so you'd think that they would know like oh this this drug has this effect it it you know prevents our vaccine from working there's a bunch of loose ends here (laughs) it it wasn't a loose end the it seems like antidepressants in their society are is very common but the antidepressant in that case put the emote cooled the emotions and probably the neural activity to the point that the vaccine didn't work and connect. And the fact that the AI didn't realize it didn't work was because the guy who said, yes, you're clean. No, you're not go back for retreatment was letting thought deviationists go. So the fact that, Oh, that makes sense. Doctor and his assistant were clearing people and saying, Mm -hmm. Yes, you've passed the treatment despite taking eraserol is why it didn't work. People putting in fake data or false verifications is why the system did not know it worked or didn't work. That makes a lot of sense, Tamara. Thank you for clearing that up because they broke the feedback loop they, or they corrupted the feedback loop the AI was using to learn. That makes sense. 
I thought it was funny that you guys said that uh, it would make a good movie because I was thinking that like most of the way through, I was like, this is more like a script for for uh, a screenplay. Good screenplay, and, yeah. Yeah, and then I got to the climax and I was like, no, this scene is not going to work <laughs> on camera because <laughs> they're just sitting there sending emails back and forth <laughs> at the climax. That's boring. No one's going to sit through that. <laughs> Actually, I beg to differ because I think it's David <laughs> David Sedaris. I think has a has a, in one of his books. I forget which one. He talks about how he doesn't like most modern action movies because the inevitable climax is somebody at a computer saving the world. <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to see you typing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well I, think I think they'd just have to rewrite that part to involve a car chase and some karate. And then the American audience would love it. Explosions and guns. Right. It was just a bit too hurried, though. I mean, it, it made internal sense, but still, it was like, you've, you've done this amazing world building and built it all up, and then suddenly just decided to go, quick, quick, enter the passcode and push the big red button and everything will be well. Yeah, that's why I say I would like to have seen it. Like, I, I like the world, but I would like to have seen it fleshed out a lot more. And I think if it was fleshed out a lot more, I might care more about some of the characters. Like, when Ginger killed herself, I kind of didn't feel anything. I was like, well, I wasn't expecting it because I knew she had been suicidal, but then she seemed to be having a, like, nice, like, Varn was back and there was, like, some kind of hope, but it, it wasn't, it was kind of like, oh, She's dead. Well, that was unexpected, but I don't care. So what you're saying is that now. you're like Botus. <laughs> yes, yeah, I wasn't that, sure if I there was a moral implication to her was... death, but I knew it was illegal. The whole book, I was having trouble getting into it because it's almost all written in summary. So I was like, okay, when is the when's the inciting incident? When are we gonna start? And like everything felt like an inciting incident, and then it didn't afterwards. And I it mostly being in summary and non-descriptive language like I feel like that's why people are not connecting to the characters and stuff because it's really hard to connect when everything is just rushed like that and you have nothing to hold on to I have yeah uh, oh go ahead I was gonna say that the ginger thing really threw me because they built up this whole relationship they had and then all of a sudden boom she's just gone and uh, i didn't really understand that how she how she was now they were back together and everything was happy and they were going to go off and do this and then boom just gone so that, that's all i was going to say yeah it's it like almost served to show that he had like he lost everything and then even further it's like and now you think you have this thing but you've lost that too kind of i don't know yeah, when I talked sorry, about Chicky it, Bear. Um, no, I'm, when I talked to Rectumwald <laughs> about it, he he mentioned that it, like there was a necessity, which I agree with. There's a necessity to show that there are casualties casualties to this battle that are like, like psychological consequences to the battle that have real effects on people. Like she was defeated psychologically. Um, I just didn't feel it, but that was the intent of like, oh, she, this this system killed her. Even though she killed herself, it was the system that really killed her. And that was an important, um, he felt that that was an important aspect to show that 
it's not just about it's not just about people like Varen who are going to try really really hard to fight. It's also it causes some people to give up. I'm sorry, I cut you off, cheeky mayor. Oh, it's okay. Um, I was just Carter explaining that is helpful, but I was just thinking um, the publishers like you know what they need in this book a sex scene. Please insert sex scene here and then kill the person off so we don't have to deal with her. Like, <laughs> that's, that's my <laughs> cynical uh, mind working, but. Let's be clear, I needed the sex scene. Okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, if it were a screenplay, you would need the sex scene. Right, exactly. Like, it's not unnecessary, but it's like, okay, this woman has fulfilled her need and we've we can now dispense with her so well that makes this like a bond movie like <laughs> tech version of a bond movie so i had a question carter and i haven't seen the interview yet so maybe you can help me with this is is uh rectonwald christian do you know oh that's a he grew, i think he grew I don't up think I've ever... okay huh? he went to catholic school yeah, but I've never asked him directly. I think yeah, he's a Jordan Peterson type Christian. If I, I saw to. in the um, interview that you did with him, Carter, I listened to it twice. And he said, when you were talking about uploading your brain into a simulation, he said he would not like that because he's concerned about his soul. Oh, that's right. Well, he did mm -hmm. say that. Yeah, so he might be... Christian. I think I, I think I, the reason the reason I ask is because I thought there's a very Christian element to uh, part of the story where he includes the part about uh, Varen feeling guilt and remorse about the death of Faust and how he um, he decides to write a letter and confess. And he doesn't do it because of the probability of what's going to happen. And, you know, even afterwards, when he tells Botus what he did, Botus says, well, I calculated that, you know, you shouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have written the letter. You're, it may not bode well for you. But he, he actually has him explain, uh, you know, he says he sent it because it was the only right thing to do. And the results were not his to control. And I thought that this, this idea of um, it's like, redemption and trying to be trying to live in a way where he even tries to explain it to Bodus. He said, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. And, yeah. and this very I, human I, part of that's like, kind of a Christian centric view of it though. Like I would write a letter like that. I'm an atheist. Right. But I have my opinions on that. And <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> And now we psychoanalyze Carter. Go. <laughs> Uh, but but I just I don't know maybe because I just came from uh, a sermon today too and and was thinking and it was about the prodigal son and just thinking about redemption and and doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do and even after like when you make mistakes you know confessing and and committing to live in truth and to confess those sins or mistakes or things that you did. Uh, Anyway, that just that just struck me in that way, and I was curious. But. You know, you reminded me of something else that I thought was uh, interesting and and sad. 
commentary on humanity. But he writes the letter, and Botus says, well, according to their principles, you have to be still a member of the network because you know the only requirement for membership is the intent to be a thought deviationist. So they can't kick you out. And then Varun was like, yeah, but what's the probability that humans like will live by the <laughs> principles of their organization? And it was like, what, 49% or 51%? Something horrible. And I was like, oh. 40, 41, <laughs> I horrible. think. <laughs> that also, yeah. that, that relates to another great line in here where when they were first talking about the principles, oh, I wonder if I can find this. When they were first talking about the principles, he said that it was clear that in the writing of the principles, they were recognizing, uh, you know, throughout history, um, revolutionists tendency to become despots themselves mm. and to try and prevent against that. This whole idea of, you know, like look at the French Revolution where those who are enacting the revolution end up becoming just as tyrannical in some ways. And uh, I thought that was, I thought that was a really nice little note. Well, and the populists end up re-voting for an emperor. I mean, the French Revolution is kind of a weird thing, right? They get rid of the monarchy, go through a whole bunch of turmoil, execute a bunch of people, and then the population votes Napoleon to be the emperor. It's not really sure what the point of that entire few years was, but good job, guys. It relates back to that quote, again, about how at the very end about collective mind and how the subjects have to have to want, have to be the architects of their own subjugation. And uh, Keith the Hat Guy, is he still here? I see him there. But he shared a quote with me the past couple of days that I had never heard before. And it just made me say, wow. <laughs> uh, this is a quote from, let's see if I can find it. If you're there, Keith, jump in. Okay, this is a quote from Julius Caesar. He says, And when the drums of war have reached a fever pitch and the blood boils with hate and the mind is closed, the leader will have no need in seizing the rights of the citizenry. Rather, the citizenry infused with fear and blinded by patriotism will offer up all of their rights unto the leader and do it gladly so. It's kind of along those same lines. Yeah, Tamara, you you wrote something in chat, which I think is an interesting question, which is that whether the antidepressants were allowed partly because uh, it was, you didn't use this word, but I'm going to put words in your mouth. Uh, it was like a, an attempt at allowing some sort of eugenics. Like, well, if you're unhappy in this collective mind, go ahead and get yourself addicted to something and die. Like, that's fine. You'll, you'll die off and we'll mm -hmm. have a, a bunch of people who like the collective mind. Record scratch. Oh. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Tamara's just not going to respond. Okay. Kind of like if you don't like it here, you go move somewhere else, kind of thing. Well, yeah, like intentionally letting the antidepressants show that there is, even with all the social control, there's still anxiety and such. So it looks like the system providing anxiety relief and making you feel better, but it intentionally allowed the drugs that you could commit suicide by overdose as a way of giving people a way out other than trying to fight the system. You know, I feel trapped, I have no way out. Do I commit violence or do I kill myself? They had the way to kill themselves. 
And the fact that she read the information on take a bottle and drink whiskey, their society had control over almost all digital communications and specifically limited in-person communication such that you you couldn't have more than two people in a room unless it was a family. So she had sex with her mentor because he was the only man probably outside of her family that she could share a room with for extended periods of time. So she jumped onto that intimacy. But when she said, okay, we can't fight this system, there's nothing left, she knew how to kill herself. If they are tracking ideas and tracking people, and if you've got all your interactions on the screen, the state can monitor everything, even if it's not faking the interaction or censoring it in real time, it is obviously allowing that information to be distributed. And while it's monitoring going, these individualist thoughts are a mind virus. We need to solve the mind virus of individualization, deviationism and individualism, but we don't bother censoring content on how to kill yourself. Obviously it considers that acceptable or tolerable. That or even desirable in some cases. More logic yeah. to this than the author is, but that's my opinion. That makes sense. I have a feeling that he thought about the world pretty in, in a lot of detail. So that might be intentional. Yeah. I think like it's you say, it, dr- it drives you to some people to uh, not want to go on or they just self-doubt so much of what can happen that they just give up. I mean, looking at like what being gaslit looks like, right? How do you feel if you're being gaslit? You feel like, you know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say the bad word, but that's what happens. So right now, and in this world and in this book, people are living in a world where they're being gaslit and we're all isolated. And when you try to come out with an idea that is different than what the right thought is, it's censored, so you can't say anything. Nobody believes you. In fact, you're attacked for actually saying something different. It's, you know, hopefully we never get to, uh, you know, you can get away from something like that. Um, But, you know, I was a little surprised when she died. At first I was like, it came out of nowhere for me. I thought that, you know, the fact that she was, you know, they got together, she was sort of getting some little hope back or something. And then suddenly she's dead. I thought, well, maybe it's an accident or there was some sort of plot twist coming up. I, I, I Yeah. Uh, I thought there was going to be some kind of like someone had killed her or it was fake. Like there's some kind of, yeah, yeah, it was all a fake. And he was like, Oh, I'm thinking that this is happening. And I'm talking to these people who are devi- deviationists. And, you know, at the end, when it comes in, he's actually going in and actually, bring himself into the you know going through the whole process again because it was all fake that's what i thought the, maybe was going to be the ending yeah but the author said he he used that as a uh, well maybe he didn't say that but it it was in there that she was young and hadn't had the experience of life and that was more what made her more prone to kill herself than <clears throat> than the older experienced mentor she wasn't inured to crushing defeat <laughs> or that feeling of crushing defeat uh yeah i've t- 
to your point, Manny, I've seen a lot of friends online sharing their struggles with this this heightened level of gaslighting that's been happening for the past few years, this year, last year. Um, and a friend the other day was saying, you know, when I look at reality and I look at what I'm being told is reality and they don't match up, my reaction is I have a fight or flight response, but where can I flee and how can I fight? And should I just start limiting my sphere of information and just take myself out of the system so that I'm not aware? Uh, and I thought that was really indicative. I'm paraphrasing, you know, what she was saying, but I think that's really indicative of where a lot of people find themselves right now. And my answer was, I think my choice is to fight, but it, to choose my battles and not have, feel like I have to fight everything. And also to take time off from fighting and do this part of the book where he talked about, um, so at first, you know, he and Ginger were going to flee and they were going to create this parallel system right and live outside of of collective mind so that's like that would be the the flea response instead of fighting i would say and 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 then he had a quote in here uh from voltaire from candide where he said uh we must cultivate our garden what he means is that there isn't any prospect for changing the world at large of convincing anyone of anything of ridding it of evil or of overcoming the enemy, all we can do is to build a small world of our own, an alternative to the larger world, yet not against it, just separate. And that's kind of that. I know some people have, I, I don't, I'm not saying any of these options is better than the other. Flee, just remove yourself from it. You know, I know a, a new friend of mine who's uh, virtually a Luddite, like not online at all, you know, barely uses any type of technology and that's one method and maybe that's maybe that's what I should be doing I don't know mine has been some kind of in the middle try and fight but be wise about how I spend my time fighting and then take time take breaks from it so it doesn't become so overwhelming that you're just crushed by it you know it's kind of a ramble but that's what well, you no no time. you're absolutely right and I think what happens too is because we're so isolated because we are because of COVID then it's like you against the world. But if you start seeing that there's a lot of other people that see things the same way as you, then you're like, okay, obviously I'm not crazy. I'm not looking at something and maybe somehow seeing something different than everybody else because you're not wrong. You're seeing it the right way, right? But that's the, that's the unfortunate situation that you know technology sometimes can drive you to. Uh, I think you're right the right way. I mean, I agree with you is to... Uh, you know, pick your battles and, you know, try to, in a, in a respectful way, you know, engage other people and discuss ideas. I mean, obviously you're, we're not always wrong. We're not always right. There's a lot of things we can always learn and uh, hopefully we can go back to that. Um, you know, that's, that's what I think. I mean, I think that uh, that's why I say I want to go back to the old normal where we can all get together and do everything we used to do and, not worry about having to wear a mask and, you know, whether I'm going to get somebody else sick or not. Not to say that you don't worry about those things because we all do. Nobody wants to get anybody else sick. But now that we're going through what we're going through with the, with the uh, pandemic, 
I think the biggest challenge we're going to have, one of the biggest challenge, one biggest challenge we're going to have is actually getting everybody to sort of get away from the fear that some people, you know, there's people who are very afraid and not to say that they're, they're wrong in that idea, but it's going to be hard for some people to sort of go back, even with the vaccinations and everything. Because we're all, it, like the entire world, it's not just here. It's That's the worst part. It's yeah. like everywhere. Yeah. Right? So so nowhere you can go. I don't want to monopolize too much, but really quickly, one friend messaged me yesterday and asked, you know, when is this going to end? When are these mask mates mandates going to end? What do you think? And and then I had another friend post on on social that her son, oh God, that her son used to say that he was excited about when the pandemic would, would end, but now he doesn't think it's going to end. And that was so depressing to read that, the, that opinion from a child looking at, you know, it's been a year. Remember when they were saying two weeks, two weeks, then two more weeks and two more weeks. And, and um, I don't know, I think that my, my thoughts also go to uh, the sermon I heard this morning. He was talking about when you want to win people over to your side, you can either appeal to people's resentment because that works really well or you can appeal to joy. And I thought that's an interesting way of looking at it. And so I think we have to, if, if you do look at it that way, we have to get better at appealing to joy. Um, and anyway. You know, um, I mean, I, I understand and agree with the getting back to normal that Manny's talking about, but um, I think the thing, I think something that we need to remember is that and, and this is going to sound weirdly philosophical, but it's practical. <laughs> There's no reversing time. There is no going back. Things have changed. People's mindsets have changed. Psychology has changed. We are in, There's only going forward. That's all there is. There's never any going back. So the question is, given the mind, given where we are now, which direction do we want to move forward? And obviously, it will look to many of us like moving back <laughs> to a norm to normalcy. But the reason I th I'm trying to make that distinction is because I think there have been a lot of people who have been um, either permanently impacted or something inside them have, has awoken and they have changed themselves. Like they've unleashed this beast uh, that I don't think is going to be easy to put back in the bottle. It's uh, mixing metaphors, but whatever it's not, it's going to be difficult to, put back in a cage. Is that the right metaphor for a beast that's released? Um, it's going to be difficult to, to put that back in because now they're, you know, they, they are the, the, the little authoritarians or busybodies running around like getting off on masks, like, or they've just become, you know, they've let their OCD out of the bag and they're just like constantly in, you know, hypersensitive and viewing everyone else as a threat like that's not something that you just talk someone out of really quickly. That that's something that needs to be addressed. Be walked out of. Did anybody notice the masks, the bubble masks in this book about how they had to wear them everywhere? Yeah. Even though there was yeah. nobody else, and then they were prohibited for being on the beach. Got yelled at by the robot dogs. Like. <laughs> oh, Frank! That's, I love that part. I because... feel like he could have when he quoted the part like the order by the order of the state of California. Like that is. That, that's exactly what happened here. I mean, um, in my area, I don't think a lot of the cops really wanted to, to be enforcing these rules, but um, like I live right, I live right next to the beach and it was just like, 
so depressing to see everything closed down. Like you could not go out to the boardwalks. You couldn't access the water. You couldn't go swimming. You couldn't go running on the beach. Like it was just like, like worse well, and thing where was ever. it they actually had robot dogs that's a real thing there was robot dogs that were telling people oh that. singapore oh were there really and, but oh, but singapore. now singapore? yeah singapore but they're also now using them they i think the it was new york where they were trying one out and they were telling um, people to socially distance and stuff, yeah right? it's they a were, social yeah. distance dog robot dog <laughs> yeah cop dog um <laughs> But I, I just to your point, Frank, I love that part about the beach because it showed that the the rules were <clears> arbitrary. <throat> it was like, well, you can't sit on the dry sand, but you can yep. sit on wet sand. Oh, Why? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you couldn't yep. get to the wet sand unless you went over the dry sand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like wear your mask at all times. Um, including between bites like what the hell <laughs> yeah or the you know the uh, other thing that was have, interesting is go ahead oh go just ahead. the thanksgiving dinner thing in california about how you can have relatives yep. over but only for this amount of time why these rules are arbitrary after two hours they gotta go only this many of them no yeah. loud clap what no loud laughing no singing. and yeah you can play instruments it, but not an oboe and not a saxophone it's just like how COVID, COVID only transmits among uh, among churchgoers, uh, Trump supporters, walkaway groups. It doesn't doesn't apply to uh, BLM protesters. Like COVID, just for whatever reason, it's. You know, the other thing I found interesting about this virus in the book was that it wasn't really clear what it did. Kind of like COVID, it was like, well, it's not like the zombie. It's not like you don't you don't get COVID and like it's not like flesh eating bacteria. It's very obvious that you've got COVID and you're dead tomorrow. It's like okay, well, it's I guess maybe there's a problem with it. Like it's a little bit worse than the flu. Okay, and similarly in the book, it was like, well, how do you even know someone's infected? It was like it was kind of this very vague. I wondered if it was fake. Right, right. I wonder if it, it almost exist, felt fake. If it was just if it was just. The mechanism to get control right yeah, yeah wasn't it like the, with him, the he virus. Said, go ahead oh no i was gonna say wasn't like the virus something that they would actually give you when you were going into the thing like what yeah i'm talking about yeah. the ostensible virus but yeah okay. well proof of infection was strong individuality and not trusting in the system and by saying it can be lethal it gives their AI, the ability to say, we take in the, you know, your denial of our society is proof of infection, which reminds me of the Soviet Union labeling dissidents as having sluggish schizophrenia. And the solution is, oh yeah, I totally agree. We live in a paradise. Okay, you're cured. We'll release you now. <laughs> and the saying, well, it can be fatal. That means they can kill a dissident and say the infection did. Right. And it, and it, I love the circularity of that too, right? Like denying the correctness of the collective mind is symptom of the virus. The collective mind says there's a virus. You question the existence of the virus. Therefore you have the virus. Like questioning, questioning the existence is the virus itself. Right. It's like, your it's thoughts, like the Salem witch the trials. It's like the Salem witch trials were to prove you, you're not a witch. You have to drown. <laughs> and if you, right. <laughs> don't drown you're a witch yeah i in in my interview with him one of the things that he said about 
um, why he he did this was there's some plausible deniability. If he wrote a book, a nonfiction book about what he thought about COVID and the response to it, <laughs> uh, he, there would be this reaction of like, you're a crank and you're a quack. And this is, you know, you're conspiracy theorist. And this is how dare you. But he's, he's like, well, I'm not talking about COVID. I set up a fictional world. And like in this world, it's a conspiracy and the virus isn't really a problem. And they're using the virus to obtain other ends. And like, he can get away with saying stuff as a fiction story that he couldn't really get away with saying in nonfiction. Speaking of like, he, he mentioned, you guys talked about transhumanism in that and um, like briefly touched on the ideas of artificial brains. And I remember back in grad school in my, in a literature course, a Gothic literature, literature course, I don't know why we were talking about transhumanism. I don't know how it came up, but it did. And uh, they were talking about the idea of an artificial brain and would you want to be uploaded to it and everything. And I said, no, because I don't trust people to not mess with something that is artificial that they can control. And someone else who uh, I consider an idiot was like, oh, that's just a conspiracy. People wouldn't do that. And I'm like, do you know people? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and they've never, no one's ever messed with anyone else's anything. Yeah. Very That's true. All, that, I kind of view that, um, I was I was talking with this with my fellow about the, the this whole tribalism that they have us on this tribalism trip about like Democrats versus Republicans and left versus right. And the people who fall prey to that on either side, really, uh, I just find that kind of amazing where you, you could be someone who's like, yeah, the 2016 election was totally rigged and Russia and this and corruption and collusion and the voting systems and they, they exclude people from voting and the voting systems need to be checked out, you know, and gerrymandering and everything. And then you come to 2020, and you're like, it's great, it's perfect, it's awesome. And like the good guys are in. The fortified election. Fortified election and they're like, <laughs> and they're totally uh, uh, like, like you're saying, Alex, they, they're like, of course they have our best interests at heart they wouldn't do anything you know because it's the party they voted for whichever party that happens to be people being suddenly totally trusting whereas when it's the other party they're not I'm, i don't get that if you're skeptical about one it doesn't carry over at all to the other party you're just like oh we're, we're the good guys we wouldn't they would they wouldn't do anything to harm us yeah well, guys, I hate to do this, but I actually have a hard stop soon. So you've got to all make a decision. Uh, do you want to go for like an hour from now or, or should we wrap it up? I, oh, I'm feeling I like it's wrap up time. I think we should wrap up. Does anyone else have any final comments or anything that you want to mention before we wrap up the show? No. All right. Well, uh, I, I really appreciate all of you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate all you guys and. And uh, next book is going to be nonfiction. I'm real excited yeah, about the next is, one too. Uh, I have it sitting here. The next book, next book is this one. I don't know if you can see. The Fourth Turning is the next book, nonfiction, slightly longer. All good. I haven't started Start it yet. But... <laughs> What'd you say? I said start now. It's long. Okay. Start now. Good it's to long. Know. <laughs> 
Uh, this is <laughs> Fair the enough, one, if, thank you. if you guys haven't seen it, Cameron Pasha, we did an interview with him. He highly recommended this. And I heard about it from a few other people as well. So I'm real excited about it. Um, yep. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, we will see you all next time for Book Club. And thanks, everyone else, for watching who joined. And we'll see you, everyone else, tomorrow for Coffee Break. So uh, have a good one. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Disavow no later than Monday at 1600 hours, Beijing time, to avoid penalties. Here's a fun lived experience. Hair sniffing is now a medically approved form of COVID safe greeting. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Technically speaking, cold weather is not evidence of anything at all, but warm weather is proof of catastrophic global warming. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.